The teaching text for today comes from Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus, I thank you for today. Thank you for this week, for Thanksgiving, for time to be with family and friends and think about all that you've given us. Um, I thank you that you're making us new, that our lives are not just the sum of our consequences, but are renewed by your promises and by your will for your kingdom and for each of us. I pray that um, we will hear your word today and that John will point us to you and help us to see you a little more clearly. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. There's this great scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, which I share with zero apology. It's like my 15th reference in the last three sermons, and I feel totally great about it. Uh, I was reading it last night to the kids. We're going through this, the whole series for the second time. There's this great scene where three of the Pevensey children are with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're on the run because the white witch and, and her wolves are after them. And they, they go down a riverbank and they hide in a cave after traveling for some distance. And they're fearful for their lives. And they hear the jingling of bells. And they're, they're uh, assured that it's probably the white witch on her sledge with the dwarf and the reindeer. And they're very nervous. And Mr. Beaver cautiously sneaks out of the cave. And he climbs up the riverbank and he peeks and he sees... Uh, something unexpected. It's not the white witch. And so he calls out to the children, children, Mrs. Beaver, come out, come out. And they go up the riverbank and they see uh, someone that they didn't expect. They see Father Christmas, Santa Claus standing right there. And this is noteworthy in the land of Narnia because in Narnia, it's always winter and it's never Christmas, never Christmas. And here is Father Christmas standing in front of them and he's got that jolly laugh and he gives uh, gifts to the children because they're celebrating Christmas. He gives something to Peter and to Susan, to Lucy, and to the beavers. And then at the very end, he's got this great uh, kind of like defiant, joyful response. He says to them, Merry Christmas, long live the true king. And I'm reading it to the kids, and I'm like, yes, long live the true king, and like crying, tears streaming down my face. And they're like, same stuff as always from dad. Like, they're comp completely immune to it now, just like I am for my parents. Uh, but I loved it. I love this scene because the scene reminds me, like, that is the church. The church is that group of people huddled together in a world where it feels like it is always winter and never Christmas. There are signs all around us of the curse of the fall. There's, there's brokenness in our own hearts. There's evil in our own hearts. There's violence and injustice and war. There are things that fill our newspapers every day. There are people who fill our hospitals every day. There are signs everywhere we look that things are not as they should be. And yet the church gets together like a bunch of conspirators and says there's a truer story afoot. 
There's a truer king than, than the so-called kings of this world, and he is the world's true king. We're just waiting for his return. And in a world where it's always winter and never Christmas, we, the church, see signs of spring emerging, where there is, even in our own hearts, love where there was previously hate. There's joy where there was previously sadness. There's peace where there was disquiet. All of the fruits of the Spirit are emerging. We see in Cheryl's story how there's a transformation in her heart toward people that she previously put in a category, and now she was treating as, as friends and adoptive children. It's amazing. We see signs of the thaw. We see signs that spring is emerging even in our world where it feels like it's always winter and never Christmas. We're the church who gets together and tells each other the story of the king who came and the king who will return to set everything to rights. And that's what we're talking about today is the return of the king, the return of Jesus to renew all things, to restore all things, and why on earth that matters, what that says to us and how we live today. Uh, this is the last sermon in a series called This Is Us, where we're talking about uh, just the, the scriptures and themes and the stories that undergird who we are as a community. We started in January, and there were 40 or 50 of us, and now there are 400 or 500 of us kind of in orbit of this community. Uh, it's amazing how God has, has grown us, and so as, as we're at this place where we're uh, coming up on, on the anniversary of our launch, we're just kind of telling our story. What, is, what has God been doing that gives this community unique flavor? When the same team as every other church in town, everyone who loves Jesus, but what's giving this community flavor? So we talked uh, at the beginning of the month about a hunger for awakening, desiring to see God do this great work by the Spirit of awakening people. Say revival is the acceleration of the normal activity of the Holy Spirit. Why would we pray for anything else? Why wouldn't we pray for that? So we looked at this awesome text in Habakkuk chapter 3. Then we started working through our mission statement as a church. In fact, let's read this together. It's less a matter of doing and more a matter of being. Who are we called to be? Would you read this with me? A community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. So Todd, uh, in looking at Acts chapter 2, talked about a community. Last week, we talked about what does it mean to be shaped by the gospel, looking at Colossians 2, and today, looking at the renewal of all things. As a Christian and just as a person, what you think about the past and what you think about the future deeply informs how you engage the present. What you think about the past and what you think about the future deeply affects how you engage in the present, which is why it's so important for us to get our story straight, to, to understand the beginning, the middle, and the ending of God's story. For a lot of Christians, there's confusion. I mean, the Bible is big, and it's complex, and it's confusing, and people have had different opinions on how to, to read certain things. There's some Christians who functionally behave as if the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 3. What's Genesis chapter 3? Anybody? It's the fall. It's human rebellion. You have sin, shame, estrangement, alienation between men and women, between God and humanity for the first time. Genesis 3 is the fall. And functionally, they behave as if the Bible ends in Revelation chapter 20, which is the chapter just before Mary read. Revelation 20 is the lake of fire. So for them, the Bible starts in Genesis 3 with the fall, and it ends in Revelation 20 with the lake of fire. It starts in sin, and it ends in judgment. And if your Bible starts with sin and ends in judgment, how is that going to affect the way that you behave in the world? How is that going to affect your understanding of the gospel? 
You'll understand it as the gospel of sin management. It's all about sin and external righteousness. People whose Bible starts in Genesis 3 and ends in Revelation 20 are are more than likely going to be very condemning of other people. Uh, I heard a terrible sermon. I won't tell you the preacher, but I heard a terrible sermon once at a chapel service, and uh, the preacher, who in my view has this kind of Bible, a Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 Bible, was making the point, you need to embarrass sin before sin embarrasses you. Now, there may be some talking points there, but his illustration was bonkers. So he told a story about sitting on an airplane, and he was seated next to a woman who was wearing a very low-cut shirt and revealing herself, and he had in his mind, embarrass sin before sin embarrasses you. You can already see that this is going somewhere really bad. So he gets up from his seat, and I pray to God that this was a lie that he told. I pray to God he didn't actually do this. But he claimed in his sermon that he stood up, he went to the center of the row, he pointed at the woman, and he said, whore of Babylon, whore of Babylon. It's like, you told this story to a bunch of college students, too. You told this story thinking this was a good idea? If your Bible begins in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall, and it ends in Revelation 20, which is judgment, that story is going to shape you. You're going to be judgmental. You're going to be condemning. What you believe about the past, what you believe about the future are going to inform how you engage in the present. You could take as an example a couple of plates I have here, a couple of plates I have here. This first is a paper plate, which I took from the closet over there. It's, uh, it's designed for one-time use. It's cheap. It's uh, easily replaced. You buy them in bulk. Uh, The great thing about these is when you have a bunch of people over, you can just throw it all away and you don't have to do the dishes. The past, Walmart. The future, a landfill. The present, disposable. Doesn't really matter. On the other hand, uh, you've got this, this piece of china. Okay, what's cool about this, this piece came over on the Mayflower. It didn't really. It came from my mother in law. Uh, but it's a lovely piece of china. I, I recognize the brand on the back. It's really nice. Uh, you know, china, although fewer and fewer of us are buying this, china is, uh, is a precious thing. Uh, often at times is, is purchased at great cost, purchased to mark an event like a, a wedding or something, usually a wedding, uh, cost a great amount of money. Often this is something that's handed down from generation to generation. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, you look at the, how this is treated, Usually you have a china cabinet. It's not going to be put in the dishwasher. You wash it by hand. You dry it by hand. You set it aside usually for a particular purpose. And maybe you got these out Thanksgiving or you'll get them out for the Christmas meal. It's precious. The past, it could be from an ancestor, from a grandparent, a great-grandparent. The future, something that you might pass on to your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. So how do you treat it in the present? With tremendous care. And after saying this at the last service, Kay, I banged it on the tray right here. <laughs> like, I really did. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry about that. It's a little bit chipped. It'll be fine. <clears throat> so, in the text that we just read, uh, we're, we, we're given a picture of God's future. We're given a picture of God's glorious intended future where, in the end, we're not flying our way to heaven. You don't see that in Revelation 21 or 22. Instead, heaven is flying to earth. And the two which were once separate become intertwined. 
John has been given this prophetic vision, and, and it says in the vision there's this cryptic line, there's no longer any sea. This, this is referring to in the ancient Near Eastern world, the sea was thought to be a place where chaos originated, maybe even where evil originated. There's no, no more any sea. The, the secret world, I'm, I'm to this day terrified of getting in dark water, like the depths, like there are creepy things down there. Uh, there's no longer any sea. There's no longer any secrets. The origins of evil have been dealt with. Then it says in, in verse 3, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and He will dwell with them. They'll be His people. God Himself will be with them and will be their God. Get this picture of the veil being lifted. You know, we've been, none of us have seen Jesus face to face, but there's a day when we will. There's so much guesswork, and, and we're reading and wondering and guessing and hoping and having faith about what God is like, but someday we're going to see Him face to face. We're given this picture of the veil being lifted. It's like if you've really, maybe you've dated at a long distance, and you just want to be physically present with that person, and then you're face to face. That's what it will be like at the end when Christ returns. The veil is lifted. No more guessing, no more wondering, no more hoping for a day in the future. That day will be one day, will be today, will be that day. It's a, it's a day to hope for, a day when God claims us as His own and we claim His uh, for ourselves. And this is verse chapter 4. It says, when He comes, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. When God comes, when Christ returns, He's wiping away tears. He's dealing with death forever. Dave is going to be out of a job and the new earth. Because there will be no more violence, there will be no more uh, rule-breaking, there will no, be no more sin or brokenness in the human hearts. When, when Jesus comes, He's wiping away tears, ending crying, pain, mourning, and death. Then it says in verse chapter 5, uh, verse 5, it says, He who is seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. He said, write it down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The one who created everything in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, and called it good, will return to make new the world that we have so tarnished by our rebellion and our sin, dealing with the consequences of our rebellion. The one who created all things well in the beginning will, will deal with it and renew and restore all things in the end when Christ returns. He comes to do what the Christmas carol says. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Wherever there's evidence of the fall, of the curse, of our rebellion, He comes to make blessings flow. If we were to go into Revelation chapter 22, we'd see one of my favorite verses in the Bible where uh, John is describing in his vision what the new Jerusalem, the dwelling of God among His people is like. And he talks about a river of life running through the city, and on either side of the river, there's the tree of life. Remember back in the garden, the tree of life? Well, now it's on either side of the city, and it bears 12 crops, different crops a year. And then there's this really cryptic throwaway phrase. Uh, it's, it, Susan's got it here. It says, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And it gives me this picture, just letting my imagination wander, that maybe when Christ returns, everything's not going to be fixed immediately. Maybe there's a little bit of process, and maybe we even get to be part of it. So maybe Jeff grabs a leaf from the tree and flies to Yemen and is a part of the healing of Yemen. Or maybe Ricky grabs a leaf from the tree and goes to Syria or to Libya, places where there's been war and there's been grief and loss and is a part of healing. 
Maybe we get to go to, to, to Somalia and South Sudan, places where there's been tremendous suffering. Or maybe we'll even get to go to South Tulsa and get to go and be a part of the healing of places where there's been tremendous brokenness. Maybe we get to be a part of the healing of the nations. This is the picture that John gives us in Revelation 21 and 22, that maybe there's work left to be done that we get to be a part of. There's obviously a lot of confusion when it comes to Christian hope. Because as I said, the Bible's big. The Bible can be confusing. You read like the book of Daniel or you read the middle of Revelation and there are dragons everywhere and you're like, oh my goodness, what is the deal? And you turn on uh, religious television and you see TV preachers who've got like, it's like God texted them like everything that's going to happen. So they make these charts that are highly detailed. President Obama shows up like four or five times in all of them and it's, it's really, really detailed and it's, man, it's confusing. Um, you, there's like work of, works of fiction that are out there uh, on these themes about end times kind of things. I may or may not have made a particular book series disappear from a church library. I can't verify whether I've done that, but I may or may not have done that a couple of times. We've got a history of people guessing wrongly how things are all going to go down and when they're going to go down. Some of you are going to be like, why, are, why do we have a pastor this young? I was three years old in 1988. Yes, I know. I was three years old in 1988. And if you were alive in 88, you remember 88 reasons why the Lord is returning in 1988. And when that book failed and he guessed wrongly, he readjusted the math and the equation and then published 89 reasons why the Lord is returning in 1989. There's a ton of confusion about all of this stuff. To think about the future and hope and like what, what God's going to do is kind of like looking into the mist. It's hard to see when it's really foggy out. It's really hard to see. But I love how one scholar, N.T. Wright, said, but God has given us signposts pointing into the mist. That just because it's confusing, just because there are varied opinions out there does not mean that we're left without signs, left without a picture of what's to happen. And so this morning as we're talking about the renewal of all things, I want to I give you a gift of a little bit of clarity about what I believe is faithful Orthodox Christian teaching, things we can believe about with confidence about God's future. So I want to give you five things. What do we know about God's future? The first thing is this. Uh, when Christ returns, we'll experience the resurrection of bodies. I spent three weeks on this in April or May talking about 1 Corinthians 15 and resurrection. But in short, when Christ returns, we're not flying off like Casper the Ghost to sit on clouds like a Gary Larson cartoon. That these bodies of ours will be renewed in the same way that Jesus really truly died. And he was really truly resurrected. He was given a transformed physical body. The same way the Scriptures attest so faithfully that when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise. And this is such good news. For those of us who have lost people that we love, we wish we could just touch them. We wish we could just, just hug them, just put our hand, just feel their body. Man, that's good news. This is the, the Scriptures attest to this so faithfully. We see it in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 37, hints of it. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the promise of the resurrection of the body. In the same way that Jesus was resurrected, the dead in Christ will rise. We can be confident about that for God's future. The second thing we can be confident of is creation renewed. And so there are tons of news and conversations about, about climate change. There's, you know, animal attacks and natural disasters. We see a world that is not as it should be. 
Scriptures promise us that creation itself is to be renewed. Romans chapter 8, creation itself is yearning for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Revelation 21 and 22, creation itself is healed and renewed. Uh, The third thing we can be confident about is God forever dwelling among His people. Uh, you know what it's like. Maybe you've done this. You've dated long distance, and it stinks to like to text all the time, to call all the time. You miss nonverbal cues, and when you're together, you just so appreciate the nearness of that person. We've experienced all of our life of discipleship apart from the physical presence of Jesus. And John, elsewhere in the New Testament, says, "Those of us who believe and yet have not seen Him are truly blessed. And someday it's going to bless our socks off to see Him face to face." There will come a day in God's future when we see Him face to face and God forever dwells among His people. The fourth thing I would say, and this is the one that gets us a little nervous at times, is we can be confident in God's future that there will be the administration of justice. There will be the administration of justice. Evil, sin, and death are ultimately dealt with and peace and righteousness reign. So the thing that we fear about this is, am I going to be on the right side or the wrong side of judgment? When when I stand before the throne of God and I have to give an account for my actions, how will I fare? So on the one hand, there's trepidation about the administration of justice, and yet on the other hand, it's what the world so deeply craves. Every time we hear about a death that never should have happened, every time we hear about a verdict that went the wrong way, every time we, uh, we, we see these things in our world that break our heart, that cause us to pray that famous prayer in the Bible, how long? Why aren't you doing anything about this, God? There will one day be an administration of justice. But the thing that gives me tremendous hope about that, and this is number five, is we can be confident about the one who is the administer of justice that the one who in the end will call all of us to account, who will, who will bring justice to the earth, is the one on whom all of the sins of the earth fell through Jesus Christ on the cross. That Jesus who will extend justice and mercy, who will be the judge over all creation, is the one who bore in his body the blame for our sin. And so while there are many question marks for me about how the whole thing is going to be dished out, and I don't think it's for any of us to say who's in and who's out, I do believe this with a ton of confidence, that when the veil is lifted and we see our Creator and we meet Jesus face to face, that He is going to be more beautiful, that He is going to be more graceful, He's going to be more truthful than we could have possibly imagined, that we're going to learn why the, why the angels are forever singing in His presence, holy, holy, holy. God is going to be so completely different and better than and other than than all of the things that we could have possibly guessed that we're going to discover in Jesus the perfect administer of justice who brings justice, speaks grace and truth, who knows how to deal with sinful people like us and who demonstrated and set a precedent for his posture in taking the sin of the world on himself through the cross. We'll experience the resurrection of the bodies, renewed creation, God's dwelling among us, the administration of justice, and we will meet the administer of justice. The story begins with God's proud, loving creation of the world. The story ends with God's loving redemption and renewal of the world. So what on earth does that mean for us? And how might appreciating these bookends of God's creation and new creation or recreation inform how we live in the world today? And I would offer two words to kind of uh, to, to punctuate what I want to talk about in response to the question, how shall we live? The first word is enact. 
enact. Uh, to enact is to put something into practice. It's to make an old reality conform to a new reality. So when the Brady Arts District, they decided it was now going to be called the Tulsa Arts District, there was some unlearning that had to happen. People on the news were like, and this event will be happening in the Brady Arts, I mean the Tulsa Arts District. They had to change signs. They had to change, you know, uh, how things are registered. There was an unlearning. There was an enacting of a new reality from the Brady Arts to the Tulsa Arts District. To enact God's future is to live today as if tomorrow were here. To enact God's future is to begin to live today as if tomorrow, God's forever future, is already here. And this is where we have opportunity to dream and to use our imagination and to think about our vocations, to think about how God has uniquely positioned you to be part of the renewal of all things. We could ask ourselves, where are there signs of death and decay and injustice and evil? In your heart, in your industry, uh, in your family, in your neighborhood, in our world? Do you think about different issues that plague the human experience? Where are there signs of death and decay and injustice and evil? Those are the places where God's future is supposed to be enacted by the church. Those broken places are the places where the church is called like white blood cells to rush and to heal. Where are their lies? Or their, where's their confusion? Where are people believing a false story that's leading them into struggling with, with depression and anxiety and, and, and total mistruth? That's where we're called to share the gospel. That's where we're called to speak the truth with our lives, with, by, by pointing them to the scriptures. We speak the truth when we worship. When we worship, we're like a Santa Claus calling out in the world where it's always winter, never Christmas, long live the true king. When we worship, we're conspiring with God against the powers that be and say that there's a bigger and a truer narrative at work. Anything and everything that we do to labor for truth and justice or beauty in the name of Jesus Christ, that is beginning to enact God's future reality, to live today as if tomorrow were already here. N.T. Wright said this. He said, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, sharing the gospel, loving your neighbor as yourself, all of those things will last into the future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it all together. These are a part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. And then he went on. He said, your task, your job, is to find symbolic ways of doing things differently, of planting flags in hostile soil, of setting up signposts that say there is a different way to be human. And when people are puzzled at what you're doing, find ways, fresh ways, of telling the story of the return of the human race from its exile, telling the story of all that God is doing to rescue us and all that God will do, and use those stories as your explanation. Think of the, the multitudinous ways uh, that you engage in the world through your vocation, through your passions, your skills, your hobbies as a citizen, as a father, a mother, a friend. Think of all of those ways and find creative ways to tell a different story than the story that's being told. Look for signs of the fall of the curse and find ways to be different and to tell a bigger and a better story. And when people ask, what is the deal with that? Be ready to give an answer. 
I believe that the way of Jesus is the most beautiful, the most true, the most lovely way to live. And I believe that Jesus will return to make everything right. And so I'm just given a teaser trailer of what's to come. We're praying about how to do that together as a church. We do that when we worship. We do that when we disciple, when we help each other unlearn lies from the enemy and learn the truth about who God is and what God says about us. We're, we're enacting God's future through discipleship. But there are also ways we know we could just like, we could take a, a walk in any direction and find places of deep brokenness in our city or a place where we're praying and imagining and dreaming together. How has God positioned us to enact His future today? How is God positioning us through our vocation, our education, our wealth, our availability, our, our, our hearts to be a part of, of the renewal of all things in the city of Tulsa? Where are those places of brokenness that we can help? Where are those places in our world where there, it feels like countries have become lost causes? How can we be ambassadors of truth? How can we show up and bring hope where there was no hope? That's what we're trying to imagine together as a church. This is enactment. Second thing is, is anticipate. Anticipate. And there's a reality that the, and, the, and a gift that the pressure is not all on us to do the work. That there's a work that will only be done when Christ returns. And so we need to train each other to hope rightly. We need to train each other in the face of death to grieve with hope. We need to remind each other there's a bigger narrative at work and it is not all on us. God cares about this whole project way more than us. The one who created all things will one day return to renew all things. And even as we labor, when we wait, we must learn and train ourselves to hope and to remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God. So I, I've been so touched every time we sing Do It Again, uh, uh, the, the song we sang this morning. Uh, my confidence is in your faithfulness. This is my confidence. You haven't failed me yet. Um, and, and we see that so clearly every week when we gather at the table. I've been thinking about the, char the concept of character precedent, how the past action of God gives us a character precedent, like a legal precedent, to help us hope for the future. And we have tremendous character presence, uh, precedent in the nature of God seen through what Jesus did on the cross. And in Jesus, and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we have tremendous character pre precedent to give us reason to anticipate the hope that is to come. That the God who was faithful and, and, and generous, not in sparing His own Son, the God who gave Himself for us on the cross through the person of Jesus Christ, who's faithfully interceding for us at the right hand of His Father, will one day return. It's in His nature. It's in His character. And the one who has been faithful in the past will be faithful in the future. And that can give us hope, and that can give us a sense of purpose for today. If you're serving communion, uh, would you please come? I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great faithfulness. And I thank you for the uh, unending ways in which you show us how much you love us. And you know what we're made of. We're fickle. We're forgetful. Uh, we are, are short-sighted. Yet I remember the Scripture says, God is not slow in keeping His promises. Some consider slowness. But He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish. It's because of your mercy that you wait for us. I pray for those of us in this room that today, as long as it's called today, we would choose to follow in the way of peace. We would choose to follow in the way of Jesus. I pray for my friends today who are just 
battling depression, battling anxiety, battling hopelessness. Pray that today, you, by your Holy Spirit, you give them a reminder that you who have been faithful in the past will know what we need today and will be faithful in the future. I prefer special grace for those people who are struggling acutely today with those things that you pour out your Spirit on them. For all of us, help us to, help us to grieve with hope, help us to look with joy toward your future, and help us to labor with hope because of the renewal that is to come. 